Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. In this episode, we are going to be discussing all things reproduction. That's right, sex, pregnancy, birth, the whole shebang about creating new life and what it means to a woman's position as represented in genre fiction. So we supposedly have a biological drive to propagate our species. As a result, it's natural that a certain preoccupation with procreation exists in art. Try saying that fast seven times. Uh, (laughs) What perhaps isn't so natural is how the ability to give birth is used to force women into a very narrow set of roles and expectations. Being able to create life is, you know, it's incredibly powerful position to be in. You know, it's probably the wrong metaphor, but, you know, you hold the purse strings to life. Yeah, definitely the wrong metaphor, but it's late and, you know, that's what you're getting. Um, (laughs) So why then is it so often presented as weakness, you know, that being pregnant or the fact that women will, you know, will go off and become pregnant, um, it so often is presented as something that makes women lesser. Why? Well, having been not pregnant and pregnant and giving birth and all that jazz, I would say that one of the reasons why it is presented as weakness in women is because when you are pregnant, you do find yourself quite physically weak. Um, My husband said he knew I was pregnant the first time because apparently I fell asleep in my own dinner. (laughs) Um, And I remember in the final months when I... um, Here's fun fact for you. When you get pregnant, all of your ligaments become very stretchy, um, which is great for giving birth, but less good for when you're doing yoga because it's very easy to pull muscles. And I'd clearly pulled a muscle. And in the last um, month of my pregnancy, I had to get off the bus right outside my place of work. And it took me five minutes to kind of hobble across because it was just so painful. Um, So I I do think from a sort of a, a physical point of view, it does make you very physically weak. I would also say that Cloning aside, perhaps the best way to get pregnant is also very invasive, you know, for some women. Um, And I would also say that there's a very distinct lack of control over your own body, both before getting pregnant and after. So after you get pregnant, everything changes and stuff you don't want to happen happens. Things you didn't know you even had suddenly start complaining or brand new things pop up and all weird and wonderful shit. Um, But I think there's also an element of you also have no control over whether you're pregnant. And I know that obviously previously in the past, I've been listening to a lot of Tudor stories recently, and the whole idea that it's always the woman's fault if she doesn't get pregnant. So pregnancy is very, very focused on women. It's nothing necessarily to do with the man. It's the woman's body and you can't control it. Some people fall pregnant really easily. Some people um, take ages to get pregnant. Some people never get pregnant at all. And I think that can be very frightening for a woman. You don't quite know how it's going to happen until you actually start. Yes, it's a, that's the bit that always struck me as being very unfair, you know, with the, the Tudor kings complaining that, um, you know, oh, it's, I'll have to get another woman because they can't provide me with a son. And you're like, dude, it's it's you. <laughs> it's it's not the woman's fault. Um, I, I thought it, would, it was important to let Charlotte speak because I feel like, you know, that neither Megan nor I have really been in this position. So it's kind of hard to to you know we can only really come at it from a a not being pregnant viewpoint but yeah it's it's um it's quite distressing that it's presented as a weakness in women and the other thing that I found slightly odd is how it particularly in genre and and I talk about fantasy a lot but that's because this is the genre that I'm kind of familiar with um 
pregnancy very, very rarely appears because it seems to be thought of as something that is is unheroic. It is not part of um of saving the world. It's not part of uh, of of learning to to discover your best self and um, and maybe that's because a lot of fantasy deals with growing up stories so you know you pregnancy is ideally part of an adult life and it's an adult decision that you make to, to have a child but you know a lot of fantasy is a buildings roman it, it deals with you know a young um person changing into uh you know the adult that they will be and they usually go on a quest to do this so I, maybe that's one of the reasons why pregnancy is so um it just features so rarely in fantasy um, but then that's why it's so fantastic when you actually come across a book with like a, maybe a slightly older female protagonist or a middle-aged protagonist and suddenly we're talking about pregnancy and we're talking about child rearing but there is i feel there is something inherently um less sexy about it um in in not i don't personally feel that but it, it is in in fiction in obviously obviously on the big screen as well the world society doesn't find um childbearing particularly attractive like it's something that happens after the story ends it's something that we all know happens but it's it's it happens in a cutscene happens in a fade to black and then you know the new hero is, is is growing up so i do feel like there is a big blank space kind of where this conversation should be happening well it's interesting you should talk about people focusing on teenagers and sort of growing up and the transition from one state to another i had a real big argument with my uh, with my mum before i i gave birth because she was saying oh it's such a, a magical wonderful time and i went no it's not i'm squeezing a tiny human out of somewhere that tiny humans are designed to go but with a lot of effort and <laughs> it wasn't particularly magical but i must have and when they presented me with with my daughter i was like oh what do i do now i think i literally said what do i do now and they were like you hold her and i'm like oh okay because <laughs> one i was absolutely wiped after all that that labor but Although I didn't feel an immediate change the minute they um, they handed me my child, I must admit that very soon afterwards, I started to feel like a very different person. And there's something very, when you're pregnant, there is something inside you in a very alien-esque kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And there, there is a certain fear to that part of it. But it's not, personally, I didn't really find it as a person, as, you know, something that I could connect with. And then once it was finally out there, it was like, oh, okay, well, it is a tiny little human being. And um, my daughter needed some um, intravenous drugs when she was born. And one of her favorite stories for me to retell is how um, they gave her a cannula. And I say to her that I had to go to the other end of the um, other end of the corridor of the hospital as far away as I could from the room where they were putting it in because they made her scream. And my huge, huge response, even though it was completely irrational, was literally to punch the doctors. And I don't mean this in a like, you know, when you say, oh, I want to punch someone. I really, really was bawling my fists and desperately trying not to just run in there and beat them and drag my baby back. And that was not really something I'd ever really expected. And I know it's all hormonal. And I think in a weird way, that's also kind of we're talking about seeing as a weakness in, in women, because you tend to be overcome by these hormones that you never experienced before or, you know, since I have much less urge to punch doctors these days. But I mean, there was all that stuff back in, in historical times with society where they talked about women having wandering wombs, you know, that disappeared around their body. And this whole idea that your womb and childbearing could actually make you slightly insane. And in fairness, it is a bit true. But I also think it's something that could be much more explored 
within um, fantasy and, and science fiction and all of these elements because it is such a massive change just within the space of 24 hours. I mean, the thing about puberty and growing up and being a teenager is it takes quite a while. The thing about childbirth is it's slightly shorter. <laughs> um, but it, it's still just a, a massive change, which, you know, like Lisa says, I don't think we see enough of really. What I find interesting about this whole seeing it as a weakness is that you get the same people who set it up as kind of, oh, it's a weakness, all women are lesser because they have to do all this, you know, the ones who desperately want to spread their seed, to carry on their line, to, as uh, the example that we had earlier with the, you know, the kings who were disappointed that these women weren't providing them their heirs. It, it seems so strange that on the one hand, it's seen as such a weakness, but on the other, they're recognising that woman has power so maybe it is simply that because she has power they're then afraid of it and they are trying to reclaim the power by keeping them down by calling it weakness yes well quite possibly i mean one one of my favorite films um is monty python's life of brian and they have that wonderful scene where um they're talking about a guy who wants to become a woman and he's like how will you gestate fetus will you carry it around in a jar and, you know, all Monty Python and appropriateness aside, I do think that particularly when it comes to science fiction, you have this issue whereby sort of cloning aside again, because, I mean, cloning is a whole new issue that kind of bypasses the need of all kind of sexual reproduction. Mm-hmm. But cloning aside, there isn't any re- anyone really who's come up with a way for men to reproduce in the future without using women or without using a test tube. So I think it's, you know, a very interesting thing to look at and it's you've kind of got this either they're really really weak or they're really really powerful you never kind of have one in the middle and I think it's because that it's something that men just cannot do physically um unless no I'm not even going to go there we'll just stop there unless we are going to go to uh Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh Junior (laughs) well I, I was thinking more the fact yeah there is that and I haven't seen that film but I guess when we were at our antenatal classes, we were told, um, so that the men could understand, we were told that the uh, the male equivalent of giving birth would be to pass a walnut through um, the relevant appendage. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I'm kind of looking at it and going, no matter how you spin that in a science fiction manner, it's just not going to be, um, well, it might be a very interesting story, I suppose. But yeah. Yeah. All right. I don't want to think about walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> Why is the ability to procreate so often uses something to fear. So I feel like this is basically, Charlotte, this is your episode because I think this comes out (laughs) (laughs) with horror fiction because you see it a lot, that the kind of terrifying ideas around reproduction and giving birth and um, creating life comes from horror. So you have arguably one of the first uh, science fiction novels, Frankenstein, you you know, is terrifying. You have things like Alien, all those kinds of ideas of like being, you know, when women are impregnated by demons and they give birth to terrifying creatures. And even um, in Game of Thrones, is it Melisandre? Oh, yeah, she gives birth to yeah. the shad- shadow creature. Yeah. yeah. So again, you know, but it's, and it's always kind of in this dark, terrifying manner. Like, why? Why are we, we so afraid of this thing that's completely natural and like the only way that we can keep the species going well i wrote down something growing inside you that will cause massive pain and lots of blood in its moment of becoming and will utterly change your life and i kind of went 
Well, that could easily be a baby, but it could also easily be a monster. I think they are. <laughs> it could be alien. <laughs> it could be. Well, that's the thing. And I think that is something part of it. I mean, there there is whole, the whole mystery of, you know, life and the one, wonder of birth. But there is also the, the darker side of this. And I mean, it is something to be afraid of because it was a massive cause of, of death among women. And it must have been, you know, obviously the women came off worse. But as well for the, for the men. I mean, you look at Susan Hill's uh, The Woman in Black you've got a guy who is suddenly left with this child to rear on his own without the mother there. And it, it's got to be mentally scarring on them as well. So it's, if it goes well, it's really great. If it goes wrong, it goes horribly, horribly wrong. Mm, I think you're touching on something that's, this is at the heart of it. It's, it's death amidst life. It's like the possibility of death in the heart of life. Like the idea that life can come into being at the same time that life is being taken away I think maybe that there's something about that that is kind of inherently dark and the possibility and also the I think maybe the way that the human body is designed and the fact that if it goes wrong it goes horribly wrong it's not a nice death it's a horrible horrible death and the worst part of it is is that you're trying to bring life anew but actually what results is you lose your own or possibly the new life is lost as well and I feel like it's one of those almost like a dark trade-off you know like you see in these in fantasy mm. stories you know when you pay somebody yeah. to take you pay with your life to take another life away it's this weird trade like maybe it's a it's a miracle if both of you come through it that you know you've 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 denied the ferryman a soul <laughs> and then it they, maybe it's this this kind of balance between life and death and, and that it's a moment of transformation yeah you when you were saying that I was thinking of like necromancy stories where you know someone you know their loved one died and they want to bring that person back and the payment for that is someone else's life because someone has to die mm -hmm. the cost of life yeah, yeah. like a life has has a cost that may have to be paid that is an inherent threat and it's so amazing that people are willing to give up their lives for children. It's like mm. you read plenty of, of fantasy books where they're willing to risk their life for king and country and for saving the human race. And yet when you boil down to it, you are basically, like Lucy says, it's a like-for-like -like trade. It's not trading. It's not saving the whole human race. It's not saving the kingdom. It is potentially giving your life in return for someone else. And it's quite incredible because you're giving your life for a life that you don't know it's what value it will have. You don't know the value of the life that you're trading because it's unformed. All you know is that maybe it's come from you and that it has a legacy and maybe it's part of you. And maybe that is a trade off to your death, like some part of you will continue. Um, that's the odd thing about the, the birth and the and death and that kind of the you know the dichotomy between the two and the dialogue between the two because there is no if it is a trade-off you know what you it's so unknown it it's kind of like and I guess this is a kind of off topic but it would boil back down to things like pro-choice and anti-choice in the abortion debate you know it's like well whose life has the greater weight whose life is more valuable when it comes down to it absolutely and I mean even in our modern society, it is still something that crossed my mind, you know, and my husband's mind when we were coming up to the moment. Um, and, you know, 
it's still it's that question of this is a really precious life is it equal to mine is it lesser than mine is it greater than mine and it's you know that, that was just an, an average everyday birth it's nothing you know like consequential like giving birth to the the heir of the kingdom or the one who's going to go on and be the chosen one or whatever so there's it's already a time in everybody's lives made completely fraught and emotional and that's just perfect you know to ramp up in um in fantasy but i mean i also think that because it is so life and death, I think sometimes people do make a slightly sloppy choice when it comes to, sorry, authors make a slightly sloppy choice because it's so easy just to kill the mother off in childbirth and then have the father die in an accident later on at a very crucial time, leaving the poor child adrift and an orphan or, or whatever. So, I, you know, I think sometimes it can just be flippantly used, but there's definitely more to be examined there. And I, I think this is something obviously we come on to a bit later, but I think there's a lot more to be said for following the story with two parents who try to raise a child properly you know that's a story in itself and that's not one that really gets explored in fantasy you usually just skip ahead to where the kid's leaving home or where the um where the parents are dead yeah i mean the one that comes to mind which which isn't i don't know i, I always find it a, a weird kind of categorization but uh outlander has pregnancy has uh claire dealing with helping someone else who's a Potentially it's going wrong and she's helping them. And then, you know, going through pregnancy and children. And, you know, in the books, like, they have children and then they grow up with them and so on and so forth. So that's an interesting one. But it's a, it's weird because it's like, is it sci-fi because there's time travel? But also it's not like a technologically based time travel. So is it more fantasy? And it's really kind of like historical fiction and I don't know I'm not getting into that debate it's too complicated <laughs> so I was thinking that this is what we're talking about is is leading on to the kind of next question about the expectation of pregnancy how is the expectation of pregnancy used to strip women of power um and funnily enough I was um reading a um a well, my mum will absolutely hate me for mentioning this, so don't mention this. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> listeners, don't mention this. Um, yes, so, listeners, if you ever come across Lucy's mum in the street, do yeah, not say what she has had to say. <laughs> my mum got sent a book um, that was a kind of a half-finished half book by a, the, a friend of a friend and asked to read it to see how he's doing. And as you can um, as you might imagine, it's not great. Um, but one of the, the things that this man had written was um, of a young female character had actually written that she would have to give up her job to support her much more kind of high flying husband. And actually, it wouldn't be such a sacrifice for her to give up her job because after they were married, they would be expected to have children. She'd be expected to become pregnant quite quickly. And I felt that is a perfect example of the way that this expectation of pregnancy is used to strip women of power is to say, well, she was actually doing pretty well in her own career, but oh, she's now married and, you know, be that as it may, that's great. But, you know, the baby is going to come along soon and she will therefore have to give up her career and become a mother. Um, and, you know, and I feel like that, but it may be bridal like immediately and and story aside, I feel like that is problematic, a problematic trope in itself. Um, but you can see how many people use it to say, well, you know, actually your career doesn't really mean anything. It might mean something in your early 20s, but oh, look, you're getting on now. And actually, we might give that promotion to somebody else because you're bound to start a family at some point. 
Yeah, and I mean, you brought up the the idea of like a lot of fantasy novels where it's like, you know, you're going on the adventure, kind of that adventure fantasy where is pregnancy and, you know, that sort of thing completely pulled out of that because, or, or at least is that why women are often not included in those kinds of things unless they are, you know, old maids, characters, someone like Polgara who, you know, that they don't expect to go and have children. But, you know, the young women, they're not really included. Is, is that because they just, it's like, well, they can't come on an adventure because they're going to fall pregnant and then they're going to be a burden and something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the young women are allowed to go on their adventures as long as they're not shackled to their um, spouses, as their prospective spouses. Like, it's fine for a young woman to go on an adventure because she's not tied down yet. So therefore, she's an interesting character. She she isn't going to suddenly become weak and burdened with a child. Um, but it, it's it's an interesting example because I think you came up with this in the notes. It was talking about Sinedra from mm-hmm. the Bulgaria, and from the Malorian, who absolutely fills this in the Bulgaria that she is a young princess who is kind of <laughs> allowed to go on some of the adventures but not others because the prophecy says that she might die you know so that's yes. and that's kind of fairly straightforward but what isn't straightforward and what's a little bit unusual is that I think in the next one in the Malorian she actually does have a child and the child is stolen yes. and she is therefore a mother does not get left behind she actually goes on the quest to recover their son herself which is very unusual because you know that's not something that you would genuinely but but i mean maybe we have to ask ourselves well she's not traveling with a child so has she has the fact that her child been stolen kind of reset her character arc like she is now a young woman again i mean she didn't this is only set a few years after the first series i mean she's still in her 20s presumably so she's not an old lady by any chance and she's not got any other children attached to her at all so i don't know whether the the simple act of taking her child away you know has kind of reset the clock for her and then we're all okay with her going on the journey because she actually isn't a mother and hasn't got a child to look after also though there's there's another kind of element to that one as well in that it is actually interesting that they talk about why she's had issues conceiving and Mm -hmm. it's because of her magical um because she's part dryad i think yeah yeah she is yeah and so they have to kind of do a a slightly different ritual in order to help her conceive so there is potentially the idea that if you're going on a quest or an adventure you're less likely to be able to set up that that specific ritual so there isn't really the chance of her falling pregnant while they're out on the road as such as well yeah so it's covering itself basically you know even if you know it's funny because eddings approached the whole subject of sex in a really quite puritanical way you know it was it was very interesting how Gary and Sinedra were kind of like tiptoeing around each other and the idea of actually having sex was such a kind of shocking thing <laughs> and that it got to the point where like Paul Gora actually has to take him aside in the second series and say you know Gary and a man has duties to fulfill you know <laughs> he's <laughs> yes. got to keep his wife happy <laughs> yeah so it was it's an interesting um approach really in that but yeah I don't know whether to say that that's an positive or negative example i think it could be taken both ways well i had a a think about 
women being involved in adventures. Um, but I also had to think about men being involved in adventures with kids as well. And I kind of came up with a few things. So um, I know that Sarah Connor in the Terminator um, Chronicle. No, I know that. Sorry, the Terminator films. I haven't seen the Chronicles. Um, she's obviously, you know, has she's pregnant at the end of the first one. Spoilers for, you know, the 1980s film. We haven't seen it yet. And then ends up sort of carrying going along with her kid in the, the second one. But she's kind of seen as a rather distant mother and she, you know, saving the world is first and saving a kid seems to be second. So that's not necessarily a great one. Obviously, the absolutely fantastic Ellen Ripley and Newt in Aliens. I know she didn't give birth to Newt, but if you watch the extended edition of Aliens, which is the only one you should watch, really, it has a whole section at the beginning where Ripley wakes up and finds that her little girl, uh, I have a feeling she's called Alice, but I could be horribly wrong, is... It was actually a 98-year-old woman that passed away about three years before she actually was found floating in space. And that was her main point for getting home, was to see her daughter and see her for her seventh birthday or something. And then she finds Newt, and the two of them kick ass, and they're pretty much the only ones to survive. I mean, they have... um, they have Michael Bean's character as well. I think it's Hicks. But they pretty much save him and put him in a, a pod and then they go off and battle the alien queen. So, I mean, she's just, she is just the best example. But I was also thinking of Pratchett, which Lucy will hopefully um, agree with me here, and Magrat. So if you haven't read the Terry Pratchett books and the Witches books, then apologies in advance for spoilers. But Magrat sort of starts off as a young girl and then she gets engaged and then she gets married and then she ends up having a baby. And there's, it's, carpe jugulum i think where she's got the baby and the vampires have invaded and um one of the witches says well you know you're gonna leave the baby here and she goes no (laughs) and just straps the baby on and goes hiking across the moors and fights vampires and does all this amazing stuff with a baby on the back and patchett being a a satirist obviously makes the point of you know you have to have the the lamb blankie and you have to have various different types of diapers and all this kind of thing but it is still her character is not diminished at all mm-hmm. by the fact of becoming um, becoming a mother. But yeah, so basically she transforms and becomes just fantastic. And if you balance that on the other way, um, I'm a big fan of the City Watch ones as well. And you have Vimes where he obviously gets married to Lady Sybil. Um, is the young lad? Well, young. Sorry, I have air quotes. I'm sorry, you can't hear that on the podcast. Young um, captain. Then he gets married, and then Sybil is pregnant, and it all happens off stage. But then you have the last one. Um, sorry, not the last one. One of the. Then you have Thud, where the, part of it is he manages to get through a really terrible encounter by thinking, "I must get home and read my son his bedtime story," and that is the whole point of this this episode. And he just basically recites the bedtime story because it's six o'clock, and he might be stuck down a mine with you know homicidal dwarfs, but he is going to read this bedtime story. And it, I I always cry when when I read it or listen to it on audiobook because it, it is just such a wonderful idea that this man is driven by his need to get home and do something as simple as read a bedtime story. Um, but then I noticed from one of the things that um, Megan sent around that obviously they mentioned Timothy Zahn and the Star Wars um, books that I read when I was a kid, where Leia basically is married to Han and goes around being pregnant and then having kids to cart around. And I, I remember sort of really liking that and finding her a really interesting and in-depth character and seeing beyond what happened at the end of obviously uh, Return of the Jedi and seeing how all, that all developed. 
I also was thinking about um, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which again is all about a man trying to save his son, which makes me cry every time. And The Vagrant by Peter Newman, which again is um, a guy who is the most kick-ass fighter ever, who just carries a baby around. And I love the fact that he also has a, a goat in tow so that he can feed the baby milk. And, you know, wherever he goes, he, he puts the baby down before he fights and he ties the goat up and he goes and fights and kills the bad guys. And then he comes back and picks up the baby. And, you know, he might be blood splattered, but then it throws up all over him or it's just all these wonderful little twists that I really like. But I must admit, these are the only examples I could come up with out of all of the books I've read. But there are a lot of books where it's a family. So I was thinking of um, A Quiet Place is one of my most favourite ones recently. And there does kids seem to be fine and allowable if it is within a family and they're sort of grown up and they can be part of the protagonist, which I thought was really quite interesting that you can't, babies are not really encouraged within fiction unless kind of as a motivator. But, um, you know, if, if they're grown up kids and they can, you know, have their own little element to it, then that's great. You know, or when, if it's a family as well, you know, that's that's much more prevalent. I know there's Bird Box with Sandra Bullock as well, which I think I think but I haven't seen. She's a single mom looking after two kids. But generally, there are, there are a lot of family stories out there, but there's very few stories where people are carting around babies. What I find interesting is in having the product of the reproduction, I guess. <laughs> so the baby or the child along with it. And I, I'm i curious about this, the sex issue. Um, and anyone who knows is probably like, yeah, of course. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> like you have all these sort of, you know, big ensemble cast kind of adventure stories. And when there are women there, it so rarely comes up that, they're going to have sex. And then because most of these, like if we're talking fantasy, they're often set in sort of like a medieval-esque kind of time. So presumably there's not really contraception. So why are we not talking about these things? So, I mean, the only one that I could really think of where like they're just hopping into bed is um, the wonderful Jen Williams with uh, Widgeron. You know, she likes to get her rocks off. But again, it doesn't, at least from memory, and my memory is appalling, so apologies. But uh, from memory, I can't remember any kind of discussion around um, contraception or anything like that. Yeah, it, it just baffles me, really, when you have these stories where these people are in life and death situations constantly, they're close quarters, you know, sleeping together at night, you know, cold, quiet, empty space, out in the open. Are you really telling me that they're not getting it on? Hmm. I wonder whether this might hark back to our kind of virgin and villainesses episode where we just talked a bit about the fact that, you know, women are kind of in well, not just interesting, but maybe their their relationships with, with a potential mate are interesting um, up right up until the point where they lose a virginity and then suddenly they're not interesting anymore. So the idea of contraception doesn't even come into it. We don't get to that point like the whole point of the book is them dancing around each other and you know and the, the culmination of losing the virginity the sex for the first time and the story is over and I wonder whether that's one of the reasons you know how women have been reduced to you know the idea of virginity and once it's gone then they become something else presumably they become the mother you know they move up the rung to a different kind of transformation different kind of incarnation of, of womanhood um and i wonder whether the idea of contraception well it is a very modern idea um and it's 
not that surprising it doesn't pop up that much in fantasy because you'd have to invent i mean come on realistically well, yeah many- you'd have to invent it but because it's not invented surely it would be a concern Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to jump in here and say it's not a modern thing, and that uh, my Latin studies revealed some very interesting ways that the Romans tried contraception, like um, inserting a lemon because the acid was believed to um, get rid of it, and having little leather sheaths that um, people in brothels would would wear, and then they'd wash them all out and hang them on the line to dry for the next user. So yep. there you go. No, you're right. You're right. The idea of contraception, the idea of contraception is not new. Totally not new. I just feel like in fantasy, it's just not discussed. That's and there true. has to be a reason for that. Prudishness. Mm. I just think it's the. I think it goes back to just the depiction of women and their roles in in the story. I don't think it gets to that point. I feel like in a way, it's a bit patriarchal. You know, like because actually the idea of contraception means that a woman has a choice. She doesn't want to get pregnant. She wants to have sex for fun. And that's, oh, that's not popular, you know? Like, no, 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 the woman, you know, either doesn't have sex or has it once and that's to her husband and then goes and lives happily ever after. So the idea never really kind of becomes, it doesn't come into the open. It doesn't get discussed because a sexually active, mature woman is something that is either, it's, you know, is a villain. Like it's <laughs> someone we don't, you know, we don't want to talk about. So maybe that's the reason why there are so few kind of discussions around contraception. I don't know. Well, I would disagree and say as a reader and writer of romance that if you read modern romance, there is a really wonderful um, dichotomy for those who write it. Because on the one hand, it's a modern audience and you want to propose safe sex and you obviously want to you know, show that the man is responsible, the woman is responsible and all this kind of stuff. But I can tell you that reading or writing um, an erotic scene where they have to stop mid-fumble and put stuff on or, you know, apply this, that and the other, it really, I know it's realistic, but it's kind of not what you want in in your novels. You just kind of want them to get to it. And I think that obviously in romance, you do have a sort of an obligation to do that because I think it's supposed to be representative and realistic and things like that. So it's kind of got to be in there. But when it comes to something like fantasy or science fiction or horror, it's not necessarily as targeted and you can just bypass it. And I mean, there are plenty of times when women have unprotected sex and don't get pregnant. And yeah. I think authors just tend to go, well, it's one of those times, which isn't mm. unreasonable. No, it's mm. not. But I, I don't really want books full of actual erotic scenes unless I'm reading for that purpose. But I feel like it should be something that they're concerned about that yeah. comes up in their thoughts, not necessarily that is actually depicted it should come up you're right you're completely right yeah like so you know say if she's lusting after this hot adventurer this mercenary with his bulging muscles or whatever (laughs) 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 sorry i went into like fantasy porn zone there apologies um yes you know (laughs) the adventurer came to uh fix her uh backpack and, uh, you know, things got a little heated. The thought of, I want that, but I shouldn't, not necessarily because, oh, I'm not married, or, you know, potentially, but I shouldn't because what happens if I got pregnant and I'm out on the adventure, would I be left behind? You know, I don't know, just something. The the kind of acknowledgement that sex is something that people want and do, and it potentially has consequences that that element the fact that people aren't 
ever really thinking about that or, you know, within the confines of the narrative, that just rings really false. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, my experience of fantasy contraception, um, which I think was reflected in an article from Tor.com a while back, is that there's no kind of contraception during sex and the the fallback and the safety net seems to be women drinking moon tea or some kind of herb <laughs> later on, which I mean is is I almost I almost don't want that in more than I, you know, want to see contraception. So I'd rather have just, you know, fantasy sex with nobody getting pregnant, nobody having any fallout and just moving on, rather than seeing that the guys have sex, they wander off, and the women go and drink the moon tea to abort whatever it was might have happened. For me, I find that incredibly off-putting, and I would much rather just go, I, I, it's a world with dragons. I am willing to suspend my disbelief enough to imagine that some people will have sex and not fall pregnant. And I appreciate what you're saying, but you know having read bit having read stories and you know a lot of romance and, and other stuff where they do kind of focus on contraception i just like it's fine i don't mind i'd rather have no contraception than have it all being on the woman you know drinking abortifacents afterwards because that to me just sends massively the wrong message oh, and i'd rather absolutely. didn't have it at all but i but i have seen that in quite a lot and it it's quite a surprising fallback position for fantasy writers that <laughs> this seems to be oh i'm pregnant drat well i'll just drink this tea it's fine everybody drinks the tea it's fine and i'm like yeah i don't feel very happy with that but they, then again you're also missing the kind of uh male perspective you know in in terms of well will she drink the tea what if she doesn't will i be responsible will people find out maybe potentially or you know the woman does she even have to think about it does she debate about it you know like it that's that's what i feel is missing but then i would say in terms of like you know epic fantasy and that specific kind of area of fantasy but then say if we get into dystopian fiction which can often be fantasy and and sci-fi i see that is the area where like reproductive rights are actually explored yes it's kind of a, a setback or part of a plot in um in fantasy whereas in science fiction they can use it as a as a way of moving society forward or creating a different society i mean i know some of the links you sent around there was one link with the nine sci-fi books where women run the show and i've pretty much highlighted two four five of the nine as stuff that i want to go and read because it just sounds so interesting and stuff that hasn't been done before um and i mean they have various different ways of getting around it and cloning and this that and the other um but i think um science fiction is definitely more willing to discuss it and examine it than I think any of the other genres are. Talking about like fears and you know worries about reproduction. I mean, I think a lot of speculative fiction in general deals with deals with like what we're currently worried about. And when it comes to reproduction, a lot of people are actually really worried about declining rates of fertility, which is happening right now. This is coming up more and more in, in genre fiction. And like I said, in, in dystopian fiction, I think, you know, the two obvious ones are The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood and Children of Men by P.D. James, where humanity is really struggling because women just, well, the, the fertility, it's not actually necessarily clear. Certainly in Handmaid's Tale, the husband can't, it, it's him that can't get pregnant because she can um, and so on. But it, it, so it's not necessarily clear whether it's um, on the, the female side or the male side that the major problem is occurring. But they do explore this kind of idea of, well, what if reproduction 
becomes much harder to actually happen? What if we can't conceive or carry to term? It goes down one of two roads. Either because of the lack of fertility and lack of reproduction, women become goddesses and powerful because they have the power of recreating and men, you know, just sort of survive to, to, I want to say service them, but that's not right. But, you know, it's obviously the men can't, can't survive on their own and it's the women who are almost deified. And that is a very small minority of books. The majority seem to be that they reduce women down to basically a bag of organs and go, okay, you are the mechanism by which we are going to repopulate the earth. Therefore, your body belongs to us. And I find that really terrifying. Um, I was looking up some statistics online. There was a, a meme a while ago that I couldn't find, but it was basically how many legis- pieces of legislation are there dealing with women's bodies? And one section that I found, um, sorry, one source said there were 100, 468 restrictions suggested to be placed on women's bodies just in the months of January to August 2014 and how many were put on men and the answer is zero and I think that is a massive fear among modern women that gets reflected within fiction and I think that's why we tend to go towards the women being used as reproductive vessels rather than women being deified as the creators of society. I'm just stunned at those figures the statistics I mean I, I I'm not surprised uh, in a way because we kind of know that you know this is a debate that's that's still ongoing I was just watching a program the other day with Stacey Dooley joining a kind of like what they call pro-life cult as it were and she was stand, trying to make herself stand on the streets and and try to understand why they were they were the way they are and I think it's like th- these pieces of legislation that are kind of fueling the idea that that are that a fetus and that the idea of reproduction is more, is more important than a, a woman's self uh, and and who she is so like they women are reduced to their body parts that they really are only their their reproductive organs which is hugely troubling and terrifying and and the fact that you brought up those two you said that you could only go two ways and that that actually the other way where women are revered um you know, for their abilities is so slim, it's so rare. That's what's truly horrifying. And that what it seems to me that you know, we talk about patriarchy as this this watchword, but it seems that the fact that we can quite clearly say that those stories are in the minority shows that patriarchy is still hugely prevalent. And it's a still it's a hugely terrifying topic, holds a lot of, you know, sway over us and society currently the fact that we're kind of talking about you know there are so many books about women being disenfranchised and reduced to being body parts and being made to reproduce because that is you know as like a brood mother that is the only thing that you know is is important for the survivor But, but i feel like you know is it a male power fantasy like is it really about reproduction is it really about making sure the human race continues or is it simply about putting women in their place so that's that's another I feel like there's 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 dual aspects to this. Definitely. And I think the the kind of idea of that men are jealous of women's ability to create life comes up time and time again in these kinds of stories, especially in sci-fi. One thing that I was thinking about was kind of the the vampire mythology because to me it you know there's a lot of talk in in this kind of vampire world uh, of you know the sire you know, who you go and sire a vampire. And the thing is with 
the vampire mythos, a a lot of them, the the famous ones, obviously not Camilla, they're male vampires, you know, Dracula and so on. But a vampire kind of has its own reproductive power because he can make more vampires. I find that really interesting that that is kind of one of these really old mythologies that just constantly goes through all sorts of cultures and it keeps coming back and it's always, you know, these, well, often male vampires taking on that kind of role and and it's terrifying but it gives them power as opposed to the female characters who have that power anyway but are pushed put down because of it yeah it's interesting isn't it that they actually do the the siring is genuinely left to the the male vampire i.e like kind of dracula um i suppose what is what's interesting about this is buffy comes to mind and drusilla and the fact that you know and the and, and drusilla's siring of of spike is is part of what kind of motivates their their kind of relationship and their characterization the fact that you know she so it's 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 I feel like vampirism is a really interesting one to bring up because it's like genuinely it's it's the it's the men taking back control of of the you know of procreation in a really quite obviously quite a twisted way you know because they are trying but they are trying to make more of their kind um and I, yeah I wonder where that idea sprung from whether you know that the fact that you know the eye of Dracula you know he is very he's very testosterone field like he's very masculine very dark very kind of like brooding and bending over a young defenseless woman and kind of pouring his essence into her is oddly you know it's meant to be kind of like sexually implicit all of that stuff but yeah like he's turning her into something like himself and is that an interesting reversal of um you know of reproductive power I wanted to point out what you said just now about it being very sexy. So you've got, as Megan says, something that is essentially reproduction, but also highly associated with sex. And I know that there's obviously a lot of um, mythology around sex and vampires and sex being better with vampires. And then, like you said, resulting in procreation. So even there, you can't kind of get rid of sex and procreation. It just so happens that it's it's twisted around a bit. I feel like we should... Um, kind of give a shout out to um, Aaliyah Whiteley's The Beauty because we had um, Aaliyah on the show not that long ago. That book is about the women being killed off by some kind of eerie fungus and there are no women left. And kind of what happens in the end is that the men turn, they like undergo a kind of transformation, a transfiguration, and they grow the body parts almost necessary to become women and or to at least not become women but they fulfill the reproductive biological reproductive role that women that women naturally fulfill which is a really interesting kind of take on the idea of you know lots of people do write these worlds without one of the genders and what does that mean for the species but I hadn't really come across it where the men actually undergo this quite quite graphic and unpleasant transformation into into kind of like effectively women and female vessels well it's interesting you should mention that because I was talking earlier about cloning and certainly when you have obviously women reproducing and being the source of reproduction it is as we mentioned earlier kind of bloody kind of painful kind of deathly if you then take that and give it to the men and give 
them their source of reproduction. We do have obviously vampires, which probably just as bloody, but probably more sexy. Um, I can tell you that I really did not feel sexy giving birth. Whereas I'm pretty sure if I was a vampire, you know, draining blood in a nice gothic bedroom, that would be much more, you know, preferable. But if you look at cloning, it's kind of reproduction that men are able to do, but it is so far removed from any kind of affection or bond or anything like that. And one of the main things about cloning, one of the main drives within the stories is often about how people find their humanity and find bonds with other members of humanity and find family and community. And it's just really interesting that if you took reproduction out of the hands of women and put it into the hands of men and the only way they can reproduce is either by vampirism or by cloning, there's an interesting idea, it becomes something very, very different and not quite as, I want to say soulful, there's there's that real lack of, of bonding that you would get in something like um, normal reproduction compared to cloning. And I think that is perhaps something that should be explored a little bit more, how any, any reproduction by men is just really cold and clinical. And I know that quite often they have female scientists to balance the gender roles and all these kind of things. But it is a really interesting idea. If you take the woman out of the equation, it suddenly becomes very, very straightforward and scientific and unfeeling. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to bring up a book which I didn't really like very much, but uh, it's kind of a little bit of a cult book. I think it's from the 80s, maybe? Uh, the Snow Queen by Joan Deving. The Queen, she's desperately trying to basically carry on her line, but as herself. And so what she does is makes clone embryos and like sneakily has them implanted in a like loads of different women across her country or um, planet. I think it's a planet. Oh, God, it's been a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that idea is also interesting in that she doesn't want to kind of dilute her own makeup by kind of procreating in a natural sense. She wishes to clone herself entirely. You know, it's a different look at the kind of the the clinical side of the the cloning, not so much just because they can't reproduce, but one of those drivers of, you know, wanting to carry on your line, your genetic line, but in that kind of really controlled way of, you know, it has to be 100% absolutely me. It can't be diluted in any way. Um, It's quite an interesting take on that it's interesting that you've got a woman exercising power over women's bodies in that particular way because i assume that's what you meant in that you said she kind of um farms it out to women within the country rather than herself it's it's rather unusual to have a, a woman in charge of that kind of thing than it yeah is guy. yeah because she wouldn't want it done to her her i'm sure okay well we've talked a little bit about fears of not being able to procreate but what about overpopulation because like on the one hand where you know we do have these fears of you know because fertility is declining but we're also completely overpopulated for what the earth can sustain so that is also really like a, a strong concern that comes up in a lot of um fiction particularly again sci-fi so in wool by hugh howie they actually have kind of like a ballot that you have to apply for to be given like permission to attempt to conceive so in that sense, it's, you know, it's it's the 
population is very much controlled because they have very limited space for people in order to survive. So they they cannot afford to become overpopulated. And you know, similarly things like Brave New World, you've got like people who are sterilized and only like selective breeding and you know very problematic ideas of eugenics and things like that. And sterilization kind of sold to the public has Viagra instead of what it really does in Oryx and Craig by Margaret Atwood again. So Margaret Atwood, um, you know, just hands down, you, you've done some really interesting takes on procreation and reproduction and take my hat off to you. But yeah, I just, I think it's really interesting that you kind of have these two almost opposing fears that come out in speculative fiction in, in these different ways. I feel like overproduction isn't quite as often explored as as kind of like the the importance of reproduction, you know, the other side of the, the story. I mean, the one thing I was just saying, going back to that television program I watched with Stacey Dooley, the, the one thing they never talked about in it, it was the idea of, you know, carrying a child through to term. It seemed like once that child was out, they these are the kind of anti-choices, they lost interest in that child's life. And while that raises you know, questions of morality and whether, you know, you should bring a child into a world which, you know, you it's it's a hostile world that you may not be able to care for that child. The point is nobody ever spoke about overpopulation or, you know, the idea of of making women carry these unwanted pregnancies into a world which was already hugely overpopulated. Um, and I feel like this is a um this is missing from, you know, I'm not sure how much it's missing from, um, you know, the science science fiction kind of debate, but it's certainly, I feel like it's missing from the, the general, general ideas of debate. I think we seem to be much more uh, interested in reproduction and, oh, what if we can't reproduce than we are with, well, we've already got too many people. But does that come back to the idea of, of the kind of um, natural drive that you want to carry on your line? That yeah, you want I think to, it does. To do that. So that kind of just plays into how we're wired a little bit. I, yeah, I yeah, think. I agree. I struggle with this because I don't know whether it's books I'm not reading or whatever, but most of the stuff that I tend to enjoy and read is stuff where it's the opposite. And in a post-apocalyptic society, you have sort of underpopulation. So Battlestar Galactica, um, The Girl with the Gifts, um, Boy on the Bridge, that kind of thing. That, I, I must admit, I don't recall many books that dealt with overpopulation and I when you said wool I was like oh yes of course but I suppose it's because it's quite a contained environment which led me on to think about Battlestar Galactica but again they are trying to rebuild the human race from absolute devastation um, and I know that at the beginning they have that wonderful bit where the president has the running total on the board and she updates it you know now and again and it's that poignancy of when there is one born she can just change it by one number and then the terrible moments when a ship is blown up and she has to change it by you know a couple of thousand um so i found that very useful in battlestar galactica but i really i just don't seem to be drawn or seem to be reading the books that deal with overpopulation for me it's always in the post-apocalyptic world the issue of trying to repopulate mm. i don't know anything about ender's game but the article i just read about it seems to suggest that that it might be an overpopulation problem. Dad, I know it's Orson Scott Card, so it is not going to be featured really highly in our show, but... <laughs> I have read it. I've read the first book. I've not read the rest of the series. 
it's, it says that it's a future world in which their children are heavily taxed. Yes. Oh, yeah, that is true. Yeah. So they're, they're second class citizens. So that suggests that there might be, mm-hmm. you know, an issue with population. Yeah. But the thing is, it, what's interesting is that there is actually already kind of examples of this in our world and it isn't kind of reflected in our fiction. So you look at China. And, oh, yeah. You know, why isn't that looked at more closely in, in fiction? Because, you know, the, the reason I love speculative fiction is that it puts a lens on what is actually happening in the world and kind of dissects it and looks at it in different ways. So it, it, it seems like a real missed opportunity. You don't really, that's not something you see in fantasy. The overpopulation is not a fantasy problem. But why Why shouldn't it be? I mean, like, fantasy just as, well, maybe not quite as much as science fiction, but fantasy still is a genre that comments on the real world. Or it should be able to comment on the real yes. world. <laughs> Whether it's very good at doing that <laughs> is open to debate still. <laughs> but given overpopulation is actually a genuine issue in the world today, why aren't we seeing that in fantasy? I would suggest that a lot of fantasy tends to have a very rural setting and they have small communities where if you overpopulate the village, you just build a few extra houses. There is not a lot of sort of fantasy that we would think of that is urban fantasy that would require um, sort of a population explosion that would take over the world. Fantasy, I think, by its very nature, is very... It's very pastoral. There aren't a lot of cities in it. What, are, what cities there are are sort of medieval-style cities. When you had more pressing issues, and it's usually a case in medieval societies that you don't have very good medicines, so people do die. And we come back to that whole idea that in fantasy, the issue is not overpopulation, it's surviving childbirth. However, obviously, if you picked urban fantasies, that would be slightly different, and I think they possibly might include that kind of thing but my experience of urban fantasies is it tends to be sort of gods and men or werewolves or vampires or something and how that would relate within our current experiences so i suggest that's probably why fantasy doesn't have a lot of overpopulation because either it is urban fantasy of a modern setting which focuses on sort of the monsters hidden within shadows and the monsters that we've forgotten about or alternative worlds where the fae rule or alternative history which doesn't necessarily lend itself to overpopulation issues or you have it back in sort of a medieval setting where it wasn't being overpopulated it was surviving to your 30th birthday that was the real issue. Procreation is a complex issue when it comes to women's representation in genre fiction. Often it is used by the patriarchy as a way to keep themselves in a position of power while they covet the ability to create life. From vampire mythology to gods of fertility, the ability to procreate is both admired and feared. And while neither of these approaches is inherently wrong, we would like to see issues of reproduction explored where women are presented as more than just vessels for the creation of life. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Lucy Houtsom and Charlotte Bond. If you like what you hear, please show us a little love, subscribe, leave a review and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.